It's another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Today, I'm joined by fan favorite, Asia Arangio. She and I answer listener questions ranging from finding your ideal customer, moving from B2C to B2B, and several other topics related to bootstrapping and mostly bootstrapping startups. We've continued to have a great stream of incoming listener questions. As always, audio and video go to the top of the stack, but I am getting through a lot of the written questions as well. So head to startupsfortherestofus.com, click ask a question in the top nav from your mobile device or your desktop and send us a question if you want to hear me or me and a guest discuss it on the show. Before we dive into that, we are running the next edition of the State of Independent SaaS Survey and Report. Through MicroConf, we've run the survey a couple of times, and then we decided to take last year off because the information coming through wasn't changing. The survey is about 40 questions. It takes less than 10 minutes to complete if you have your metrics handy. And then we take that data from what usually winds up being between 600 and 1,000 independent SaaS companies. These are bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped SaaS companies. And we compile a report with all the key findings and helpful industry benchmarks that you don't get anywhere else. The survey closes soon. We could really use your input. All the data is kept anonymous. And every survey response we get makes the report that much better. Head to stateofindiesass.com to complete the survey. And we're going to enter everyone who completes a survey into a drawing for a free ticket to MicroConf US 2024 in Atlanta. That's more than a $1,000 value. I know it's a lot for me to ask you for 10 minutes out of your busy day, but it really would go a long way towards making this year's report the best yet. We are mixing it up this year, asking different questions and pulling out different findings than you've seen in the past. So even if you've filled out a prior survey, it'd be amazing if you could head to stateofindiesass.com and complete it. I wanted to let you know about our MicroConf Mastermind program. If you listen to this show, you know that I've talked a lot on this podcast about how important masterminds have been to my own success. But finding the right founders for your mastermind group can be very hard. Over the past few years, my team at MicroConf has successfully matched more than a thousand founders into mastermind groups by looking at revenue, team size, strengths, goals, and several other data points to make sure your peer group is the right fit. Once you're matched, you'll also have access to our mentorship series, a three-month program where you can connect with some great minds in sales, business development, marketing, and more. If you're looking for accountability, honest feedback about your business, and the opportunity to make new friends that care about your company and your success, you can learn more at microconf.com masterminds. So with that, let's dive into listener questions. Asia Rancho, thanks so much for joining me on the show again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Another listener question episode, back by popular demand. When I go on, when I go on tour, when I go to microcoms, people are like need to have Derek Reimer back on the show, Asia Rancho, Ruben Gomez. He's just have just have them on all the time. So it's, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much. Yeah. Speaking of Ruben, I gotta I gotta go back and listen to that one. I feel like that that sounds like a good one. <laughs> Yeah, Ruben. If you go to startupsforrestofus.com and there's a little hourglass search at the top, just type in Ruben Gomez and pretty much all those episodes I wind up just re-listening to. I, I go back and listen to a lot of episodes as game tape. Not a lot of episodes, but I'll go back like a year or two and be like, remind myself, oh yeah, that was a thinking then. Or like, that's actually a neat idea that I didn't repeat 10 times, so I probably should because until I repeat it 10 times, none of us remember it. And a lot of the Ruben episodes have real, really good nuggets in them. You ready for listener questions? I am. Yeah, let's jump in. Let's do it. Our first question today is a video question from Jean-Marc asking, would you adjust your target customer for an opportunity? Hey, Rob. My name is Jean-Marc and I'm building an app called Balance. It's a budgeting tool targeted at first-time budgeters. I've been building it kind of slowly um, over the last few months. And last week, um, Mint announced that they were shutting down their budgeting platform, which leaves you know, somewhere between three and four million monthly active users looking for a new budgeting app. I've seen a lot of other budgeting apps kind of aggressively go after these users. Being being small and, and not having a, a product that's fully polished, you know, I've got MVP features in place, but it, it's pretty it's pretty simple. I'm wondering if I should be ramping up to try to capture part of those Mint users. I, I've started to do a little research and started to, to talk to a few people 
but they're they're different from my target customer base, right? They're they're typically looking for free budgeting app, right? Mint was one of the the few free budgeting apps that pulled in your transactions automatically, and they might be using you know more advanced features in Mint that I don't have ready yet in, in my platform. And so my question for you is, would you try to carve off? you know, some of those, those customers, even capturing, you know, 1%, which I know is a lofty goal would still be life-changing for balance and really get, get revenue coming in the door. Um, I'm pre-revenue. I wasn't planning on releasing an MVP until Q1 of next year. Um, I have felt the pressure a little bit and ramped it up from people looking to potentially support a smaller company with Mint shutting down. And so I, you know, I can get an MVP out there in December, but it wouldn't be, I don't know if it's quite the right fit for what Mint users are looking for. So I'd be curious on how you would advise in this situation, how you might handle, you know, a large influx of users that are close, but maybe not quite what you were targeting or what you were setting out for. Thanks for all you've done and all the, the podcasts and resources you put out there. They've helped me a bunch. Thanks, Rob. What are your thoughts on this, Asia? Okay, yeah. So looking at this, this is a, it's a go-to-market question. It's it's a question around, is it worth my time to go after this customer base? And Usually when it comes to go-to-market in general, go-to-market being the practice of how do I deliver my product to an audience through channels with a particular model that uh, enables them to buy it. And when I hear this question or when I hear this context of the scenario, I think that there's a couple of things to back into. So the first is it sounds like John Mark is not necessarily convinced that um, like he, he's unsure, it sounds like around like if this mint audience is going to be a good audience for his product. I think that there's there's two ways that I would recommend approaching this. It's tough to say if the answer is yes or no. My like hard assumption is that anyone who's using mint for free may or may not actually be willing to pay for something. But that doesn't necessarily mean though that those mint users are not possibly using something else. So for example, I've been a mint user for a very long time, but I also pay for YNAB. And they both give me different sets of data that I use that are that's interesting to me. But all that to say, I I almost would rather John Mark go and actually interview Mint users and find out for himself. He could do this using userinterviews.com. One interview on the B2C side maybe might cost him 45 bucks. Maybe he throws like 25 to 50 bucks at a person, I guess like a gift incentive. So let's say like on average, he's paying like $90 per interview. He could do four to five of those and get answers pretty quickly on like, oh, are Mint users actual good users for me or no? I don't think that we can assume. My guess is like if they're not paying for it, maybe not. But that's how I would approach the first part of this question that he has. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Is whether you, what was it? Userinterviews.com. Is that what you mentioned? Mm-hmm. I was imagining, given how many Mint users there are, like I'm going to go on Twitter. I'm going to go on whatever audience I have and say, "Do you use Mint? Please, let's do a conversation." Now, maybe you're in a bubble now because if you're a developer, then it's a bunch of other developers on Twitter, and you know you may not get the the right swath of people. But I agree. So I'm I'm in your boat where I'm maybe even more skeptical that free Mint users are going to pay anything for anything. The reason that Mint worked is because they sold to Intuit. <laughs> Mint was not a profitable company as far as I know. I'm pretty sure they raised a bunch of venture and then they were burning money and then they sold to Mint, what, 10, 50, somewhere like 10, 13 years ago? Is that right around 2010, 2020, whatever? Had they not done that, like they didn't prove out that they had a successful business model. And the reason they worked was that it, Intuit then engineered it and, you know, made it lead gen, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, is it that successful of Intuit shutting it down? So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that there is a lot of, whether it's cost or there's just, is this a bootstrappable business taking on a bunch of Mint users? I'm pretty skeptical about that. Whether I talk to them or not, just on the face of it, I'm like, I, I'm not a believer. The other thing is... If your product isn't already there, I guess it depends. I, I didn't look to see what the time frame of Mint shutting down is. But my guess is if they've said they're going to shut down and people know this, usually you want to already be there, like today or last month. It's like, oh, my product is a perfect placement for it. But if you're talking about spending a month or two to develop and then trying to get the word out, my concern is things move fast and are you too late? And is there already a good alternative to where you didn't happen to hit the puck right at the right moment and so the angle is going to be off? And, it, and it's just not going to work. So it, it sounds like, so you're taking it from the perspective of, from like, you know, news hits to, is it even worth my time? Like, am I even going to like match up with this curve? And it's very likely, maybe not. Nah. <laughs> 
My impression. I mean, you and I are operating on limited information, totally. right? We've, we've thought about it, you know, a collective four and a half minutes, right? Or maybe f- a few minutes before the podcast. So it is hard without all the information to make this decision, but on the surface, the way he's describing it as like a product builder trying to kind of shoot a gap in a space where he's like, well, my product, I don't know that I really want Mint users. I mean, he says that in his question. They, they aren't really my ideal users, but oh, they shut down, there's an opportunity. That's tough. It's like, is the opportunity amazing and golden or is it something that seems cool? And I think what you're getting at, I think what both of us are getting at is probably you need more information. And you're saying, talk to customers. I'm saying, how about this? What if I run Instagram or Facebook ads that to Mint users or people who follow Mint or whatever it is to target and say, Mint user, concerned they're shutting down? Check out Blah. Send them to a landing page. Send them to a page to book you for a call. Send them to something. See if you can reach anybody through this just to get, because you don't, you don't need 10,000 people. If you get 50 people or 100 people, you know that you can get into, whether it's conversations one-on-one via Zoom or whether it is email conversations or whatever, I feel like you need more information to make this decision. I'm just giving a gut feel leaning based on a 90-second voicemail. Totally. I also think, too, it sounds like the MVP isn't out yet. And that that makes me think that there's like, Mint getting shut down creates maybe um, like an artificial pressure, but actually... As John Mark mentioned in his in his message, it's it's very possible that these Mint users are actually not the ideal paying customer anyway, especially if if it's largely free folks, which he actually mentions, yeah, in, in his message here. Yeah, I, I agree. There needs to be some type of validation. You can go the route of customer discovery. So, of course, like you could interview Mint users directly and get a feel for that. Then there's also Mint aside, who would be your best paying customer anyway, which is really like the area in the space I would probably spend more time in. And then there's the the other way that Rob is mentioning, which is like you could run like a campaign and test this pretty quickly. So thanks for your question, John Mark. I hope our thoughts were helpful. Our next question is a voicemail from Daniel. Hey Rob, this is Daniel, tuning in from Germany. Thanks for your podcast. It's a great source of knowledge and very inspiring to me. In one of the more recent episodes, you talked about certain anti-patterns that are usually a bad idea. One of them was to translate your app, which I agree with. I do wonder if this also applies to marketing, say educational content on my website. So for context, I'm working on a code review app called Codelantis. This is currently just a side project for me. And my primary goal is to get in touch with people interested in this particular field. Since I'm German, I could quite easily translate selected articles myself, and this would maybe help in terms of SEO and things like that. I'd be really curious to hear thoughts on that. Thanks for everything you do. Cheers. So just to clarify, my understanding is, and I went to his website, it's codelantis.com. The H1 is understand and review pull requests fast with Codelantis. The website is currently in English. And so I think what Daniel is asking is, does it make sense, since he's German, he speaks German, for him to start translating some marketing or educational content, some blog content into German to potentially attract people? Because it's, it sounds like it's a relatively small lift. I mean, I don't know, translating a blog post feels like a big lift for me. But uh, anyway, so that, I just want to clarify that because I was trying to figure out, you know, in, in the SaaS playbook, I talk about people who they hit their ceiling of 8K a month and then they're like, I'm going to translate this into Spanish, German, French and other things. And I'm always like, that's not, unless your market is tiny, tiny, that's not the next step. Like do the hard thing, which is, Market and sell. <laughs> don't don't use this excuse to go. It's a form of procrastination, right? But Daniel's asking, like, well, I'm German. Maybe does it make sense to translate some blog posts and other marketing stuff into German? What's your take on this, Asia? Yeah, I okay. So I can I can see both sides to this. I think my my ultimate strategic question would be: Is this actually your next best growth opportunity? And you know, we obviously don't we don't have all the information. We don't know like what the MRR is. Like we don't know you know all, all the things. But my my first like hmm, this I don't think is a bad idea at least short term. It could become challenging though because while the founder may speak German, do you want to build out a marketing team and a support team that also speaks German and also caters to the English markets? G- globalization on the one hand, especially now with AI, is actually very easy, and on this at the same time, not easy at all. <laughs> Because you ultimately do need other people to support this additional language. Like it'll just be you in the beginning, but then assuming that you grow and like you build out a team and et cetera, they are also going to need to be able to support this other additional language. But that aside, I think, again, I, I really go back to 
is translation actually your next best thing to do? So I would be not knowing all the details, obviously, about the product, but I would actually be looking instead at like, are there other channels? Are there are there messaging opportunities that I have that I'm not aware of? Are there onboarding activation and there's monetization, retention? Like there's like a whole other world of growth opportunity that's not translation. However, like globalizing in some kind of way, it could be an easy thing. But yeah, but then I but then I also think too, like how much of the market is realistically looking for this? So stuff it's, it's tough to say. But my guess is I'm soft on it. I I feel like there's probably other opportunity that's maybe more pertinent. And also too, it's another go-to-market question, right? Is supporting the German language, is that something that you're gonna actually going to be committed to in the long run? And I think that that's like, you know, three years from now, five years from now, are you going to have the resources available to support that? I think most people don't think about that in that way. I love that. Yeah, I feel the same way as you do. I think I probably feel a little more strongly in him not doing it. Like I'm, I'm pretty unconvinced that this is the next best thing for him to do. And I think the number one thing I thought of was exactly what you said. Yeah, so you're going to get some... Germans who come and use a product and maybe pay and you're supporting them in German because you're bilingual and then you have some English users. And so now you have to hire support people who are bilingual. And when a German speaker starts using your app, aren't they going to want the app translated too? Aren't they going to want your knowledge base translated too? They're going to want email support. You know, it's not always, but to Asia's point, in the short term, you can kind of hack around these things. And in the long term, I just don't think it's a good decision. My gut is that if the English speaking, this is for developers, it looks like, or development managers. And it's like the, the English market is plenty big. I would spend the time on that rather than making things complex at this point. So thanks for your question, Daniel. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is a written question. So voicemails and video questions go to the top of the stack, except I feel bad. And sometimes written questions are so old. Like this is from May 9th. So this is a seven or eight month old question just because the video ones keep taking precedence. So I try to stick maybe one text question in each Q&A episode just to get through a few of them. So this question is from Vijay and he says, I would love to hear any insights on how to go from B2C slash freemium to B2B. How to keep small and individual users happy, they're coming to me via word of mouth, but still sell to big companies. I started something small for my own use and made it available for free. Then I added a couple more features with a B2C paid plan. Most of my users are from big enterprises and Fortune 500 companies and happily use free features. I'm not making much money out of it. My plan is to add more valuable features and make it worthwhile for enterprises. But for now, I'm stuck with the B2C freemium model and I'm trying to figure out a way to go B2B. And based on his email address, it looks like he's at agilebin.com. The H1 is improve productivity of scrum teams using Agilebin power tools. Asia, what do you think? This is another kind of go-to-market, isn't it? Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and this is interesting because like, when we think about go-to-market, which I like to use Brian Balfour's framework for this, so product market, model, and channel. And what VJ is experiencing is he created a product for a market, there's something about the model that's not sustaining that, like financially speaking. Like it's not, uh, like he's not making much money from it, he said. He mentioned um, freemium. And so now he wants to move from that to selling more to businesses. And that usually means, like a change in market usually means a change in other aspects of, of your go-to-market strategy. So now we probably do need to change the product in some kind of way, which he mentioned. So I'm glad that he's aware of like, I got to go and like build more features that make that more valuable to businesses. So he asked the question, How? And I thought that was really interesting because the how, there's many facets to the how. Like there's the, how do I figure out what the right features are? Then there's, how do I go out and get maybe the first customers of this new version of it? Or yeah, I'm going to put in finger quotes of like a pivot because that's kind of what it feels a little bit like. Um, doesn't sound like a hard pivot, at least, you know, we don't know all the details, but but the how is interesting because I think like the how it sounds like VJ should probably go and I, I'm going to probably going to say research like a bunch uh, in this session as per usual, but I'd, I'd be curious about his product discovery process. So how does he discover like what the product should be for these other businesses? And in that process, he will naturally come across ways of like how he can actually acquire them. But I think it's got to start with, well, what are we ultimately building and selling? And then also, who are we selling it to? It sounds like these businesses, but like, but those have to get pretty crystal clear before we're able to even figure out what channels should be in the first place. This sounds like product discovery. This reminds me of the book, oh gosh, uh, Continuous Discovery Habits by, is that Teresa Torres? Yes. 
by Teresa Torres. Yeah. Okay. That's a book I would, I would probably put in front of EJ in terms of like, uh, in terms of like answering the question of how from like a product perspective, but then from a market perspective, I think that that's going to depend very specifically like on what types of companies he's looking at. My guess he's going to be looking at some form of sales, like, you know, outbound sales of some kind, probably going to be looking at demand gen in terms of like acquisition. But from there it's, yeah, it's, it's going to, it's going to depend a little bit, I think, on how he thinks about this. There are opportunities based on what agilebin.com does. This kind, this also reminds me a little bit of like Dropbox and how how Dropbox grew. I mean, we hear about growth loops all the time, but I'm I'm wondering if there's like a this might be slower and longer, but there are likely growth loops that Agilebin could probably consider. But my guess is he probably wants money in his pockets faster than <laughs> sooner rather than later. That's the challenge of freemium, right? Yeah. Is it moves it moves revenue out, which if you have cajillions in venture, you can do it. And if you're bootstrapping trying to quit a day job, usually you don't want to do it. Right. So that's a challenge. I like I like the way you thought about it. Brian Balfour, he was famously did ran marketing at HubSpot, I believe, and now he has his what is it in in the Bay Area? The academy he has. It's the teaching people how to market. Oh, is it Reforge? Go to my Reforge. Yeah. Yep. I love Reforge. Yeah. And Brian Balfour is awesome. He just launched a podcast in the last few months as well. But I like your your talk about go-to-market, product market, model, and channel. Uh, the, those are the four. I was Before you said that, I was like, I think the things that VJ needs to think about are how much the product needs to change, how his marketing might need to change, and how his sales operation needs to change, which I think right now he has no sales operation. So it overlaps a bit you know, with what you said. And realistically, the first question I have is, do you want to go after Fortune 500 companies and big enterprises? You're talking procurement. You're talking sales cycles of six, nine, 12 months. I say this from secondhand experience with you know 171 investments who the majority of them do some type of sales process. And if you're up for it, then awesome. But really be sure you want to do that. This is, not, this is no longer an indie hacker project once you do that. Product-led growth is something people throw around. is way harder. To, it's much like freemium, way harder to do well than everyone thinks. And the second thought that I had is, does your product, could it serve the enterprise today? Would they buy it as it is? It's not will individual users use it, but will a team pay the money for it and pay enough money? Because the moment someone says procurement or custom terms of service, or I want single sign-on, or I want you know whatever enterprise features to be able to this and that, all right, cool. Minimum thirty grand a year. That's it. I'm not. I'm not going to do go through the pain or do any of that for less than about. Usually, I say twenty five to thirty five grand a year. Minimum, minimum, minimum. Because otherwise, it's just not worth it. And there's only so many customers, you know, who are going to pay that. So that's the thing I'd be thinking about. I mean, I think when I when I look at it super tactically, I think you can have a dual funnel, right? I talk about dual funnel where it's like you have this low end funnel that can either be free. Or it can just be inexpensive. You know, think of think of Castos, right? Which is podcast hosting, and they have twenty nine dollar a month plans, and then they have plans that are like thousands a month where they do all the editing and everything. And that's that's cool. He has a dual funnel: people coming in on the low end and the high end. And there's enterprise sales on the high end, and there's not on the low end, right? It's self serve. And Ruben Gomez has this with Signwell as well, right? There's the main product, e signature, and then there's the, the APIs for, is pretty expensive, right? It's a call us type pricing. So you can do that. And I, I think Agilebin could potentially be that. But I don't know. If you don't already have the interest from the enterprise, you got to think, well, so do I, I guess it's just, as you said, it's a, cold, it's a cold outreach at that point, or a warm outreach in this case, where you look at what are all the domain names on the emails I have in this free plan. Oh, there's 10 people at Netflix. There's seven people at, at Target. There's nine at CVS. Are you now reaching out to them saying, hey, that's PLG, right? That's what Slack has done. You know, is that a potential first step of just seeing if anybody responds or anybody cares or anybody's using it enough to consider that there needs to be some type of enterprise plan? That's probably how I would be thinking about it. The alternative is just to abandon the low end at all, not do a dual funnel. Just say, I'm going to shut down the free plan or at least shut it down to new signups for now. And I'm going to double down and go all in on enterprise, figure out what to build to do it. I think that's more risky and I don't know in the near term that I would necessarily do that. It feels like the free plan is his marketing right now. Like that's... That's the marketing channel, you know, so he owns the leads, as Patrick says. Right. And it's, uh, what's the the saying, freemium is on a revenue model? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just a marketing channel. Yep. Yeah. It's it's more marketing. I Something else that you mentioned that made me wonder, because it sounds like, it sounds like the tension is, is really not making enough. There was something, yeah, I, I am not making, I am not making much money out of it. So my plan is to, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that sounds like the tension point. And what I'm curious, what I'm also curious about is what if you switched away from freemium? 
that terrifies a lot of people, <laughs> scares a lot of people. But if there's not that much coming in, if it does not feel like it's as big of a risk, what if you moved away from freemium and figured out how to make this work on the smaller end? There's all kinds of trade-offs for this, but it makes me wonder like how much do we actually have a better product than what we think we do? And we're just giving away a lot for free, basically. And moving away from freemium can be undone pretty easily because you can just hide the free plan on the pricing page wait a month or two, keep the free plan active, don't kick everybody off, don't start charging people yet, and just see what happens. And maybe re- maybe do reach out to your free people, you know, your folks who are currently on your free plan and be like, hey, did you know the pro plan is so amazing and you should really upgrade and blah, 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 and see if you can sell it to anybody. And that'll start giving you an indication of have I really built something people want and are willing to pay for, right? That's my kind of product market fit text expander. Not just building something people want, building something they're also willing to pay for. And I think that's the biggest question that I'd be asking myself these days. So thanks for the question, Vijay. I hope that was helpful. Finding the perfect software engineer for your team can feel like looking for a needle in a haystack, and the process can quickly become overwhelming. But what if you had a partner who could provide you with over 1,000 on-demand, vetted, senior, results-oriented developers who are passionate about helping you succeed? And all that at competitive rates. Meet Lemon.io. They only offer hand-picked developers with three or more years of experience and strong, proven portfolios. With Lemon.io, you can have an engineer start working on your project within a week instead of months. Plus, you won't waste your time on candidates who aren't qualified. Lemon.io gives you easy access to global talent without scouring countless job boards, and it's more affordable than hiring local talent. And if anything goes wrong, Lemon.io offers swift replacements, so it's kind of like hiring with a warranty. If you need to grow your engineering team or delegate some work, give Lemon.io a try. Learn more by visiting Lemon.io slash startups and find your perfect developer or tech team in 48 hours or less. As a bonus for our podcast listeners, get a 15% discount on your first four weeks of working with a developer. Stop burning money, hire devs smarter. Visit Lemon.io slash startups. Our next question is a voicemail from Fred. Hi Rob, my name is Fred. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. My co-founder and I have a bootstrap SaaS called Warp Table, which offers a PC-based platform that makes webcam play easy for trading card games. As you mentioned periodically, engineers often hate sales and we're not exceptions. Yet, I'm particularly struggling with how to approach cross-channel marketing, if that's the right term here. We have a warm lead, which is a charitable organization that serves children with prolonged stays in hospitals. They want to help the children they serve reconnect with friends and family, and a very common request is to play physical card games. As long as we can afford the cloud costs, we aim to serve them for free. Unfortunately, the goodness of our heart doesn't pay the bills. Our hope is that they will give us an occasional shout out to help us recruit paying customers who can enable this to continue indefinitely. A shout out from them could bring thousands of times more traffic than we've been able to generate ourselves. However, I realize just hoping isn't enough. How do I frame this in my own mind and then in conversation with them so that we all feel I am asking them for a win-win? Thanks in advance for your advice and thank you for the thought-provoking discussions in the podcast. So this one's interesting. This is why I like listener question episodes because people come up with just stuff that I just would never, I would never think of, you know? What's your, what's your take on this? Okay, so there's so many layers to this one. And I think that's why it's such an interesting question and, and just scenario in general. But so... This first makes me think about what growth loops exist in the business today. And what I mean by growth loop is there is some trigger that happens that generates either like an awareness or an acquisition or or some quality touch point with the person that you ultimately want to acquire. So for example, the most popular one that everyone knows about is Dropbox. When you sign up for Dropbox, you, what is it like if you, if you share Dropbox or you invite someone else, you get more space. You both get more space, I believe. You both get more space. Um, Slack is another really popular one. You you create your organization on Slack. Um, first thing Slack Slack asks you to do is to invite your team members, and then so on and so forth. The other most common growth loop that most people are not aware of, but most people have, are actually marketing websites. So you create content. Um, it it attracts people. Ideal people come to your website, etc. Hopefully they sign up. It's a tougher growth loop because it's not super predictable. It's not like a one-to-one transactional type thing, but it is technically a growth loop. And what this made me think about was what are the growth loops that exist for this business when it comes to the charity specifically? 
So when the charity is using what was, I think it's video games. Is that what this is? It's called Warp Table, mm-hmm. and I had to Google it, but it's it's software that allows you to play physical card games remotely. So think of like Magic the Gathering, or even I imagine like Solitaire, or I don't know, I have a bunch of, of games. And so as long as you have a webcam set up and can see the, the cards on the table, and uh, you know, your opponent is on the other side of that, and they also have that, then th- I, don't know, I don't know exactly what the software does, but th- that's basically what it, what it is. Yeah, so this this makes me wonder. Well, first, like the 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 request is it's almost like a hopeful like I want to maximize this as much as possible. Like I want to make sure this generates cust- like more customers for us. And my my first thought was what growth loops exist in the platform today, so that way when either the charity uses uses it or anyone from the charity involved with the charity et cetera uses it, that it creates a natural growth loop. That was my first thought. And then the second thing that came to me was it also kind of sounded like maybe uh, Fred might have been stuck on positioning this to the charity. Like, how do I how do I position this in a way where they're going to see the value and like want to actually invest more in this or or you know pay for it, whatever it is? Because unironically and maybe also ironically, Fred is like, we are not running a charity, <laughs> but we are helping charities, <laughs> which, which I totally get. I totally get that. So this this kind of, it, it's like a little bit of positioning. And I also kind of felt like maybe t- also too, Fred is like, oh, I'm afraid to charge for it, especially like if the kids love it. So I, I don't know, like I could see scenarios where the relationship with the charity could be worked out where the charity like does like lots of case studies and like does like testimonials and things and kind of makes it so that they become like marketing in a way. But I think that there's also potentially product or slash platform opportunities or app opportunities, whatever that looks like to, to ultimately generate, like act as a growth loop. And then I think there's this other part that's like the conversation with the charity about how do I position this in the way where they're going to hopefully get it, see value, et cetera. There's many layers to it. Yeah, I agree. The way I think about it is the charity sounds awesome. Like they're helping sick kids. And I think if you're going to do it, yes, ask for, I love the idea of case studies, testimonials as marketing material. And if you ask for one or two emails to their list a year that they, you know, promote you or something on social, what's their biggest social channel? But I would be super specific about it. I wouldn't be like occasionally mention like what 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 kind of feels right to you and not too much. Is it two mentions a year across channels? Is it three mentions? And then assuming the costs aren't big to serve these customers, I'm just it's a PC it's PC software, so I'm assuming again it's not like a kajillion dollars. I would probably just go into it hoping that it broke even, and, and at best be like, you know what? If this never does anything, at least I did good for the world, and at least I did good for this charity. That's probably. I don't see a strong reason not to do this now. If they weren't a charity, this when, when I first read the question, actually, because I read the transcript first, I didn't catch that they were a charity, and I was like, no, don't do that. Like, don't give away your software so they can talk about you. But then I was like, oh, there's they are. It serves children with prolonged stays in hospitals. Like, oh, I would just do that out of the goodness of my heart, <laughs> you know, and try to, to help them again, as long as the costs aren't high, anything, any marketing or any value you get out of it to me is, I, I think is a bonus, but I wouldn't have high, I wouldn't have high hopes for something like this of like, Ooh, I'm going to sell a bunch of pieces of software. Cause I, I think you might be let down. Very, very valid point. That makes me wonder there's a charity, but are there other customers or users who are maybe much better fits for these asks. So it is a little bit more of like a quid pro, you know, quid pro quo. But yeah, that that's a tough one. That's a tough one. It is. And you do have to ask yourself if you're trying to get a startup off the ground, is this the as you said earlier like is this the biggest growth potential opportunity you have on your radar right now? It probably isn't. But then we have to ask ourselves, who are we as people, you know, and and what are you willing to potentially sacrifice in terms of a time investment or in terms of some revenue or whatever it is that you're going to sacrifice with the hopes of helping a charity and helping kids in hospitals, right? And so I think each of us has a has our own answer to that. Most of the time on the podcast, we talk a lot about maximizing our growth, maximizing our enterprise value while maintaining healthy relationships, right? While not driving our family, you know, and, and other relationships into the ground. But in this case, I think there is even that third factor of kind of the broader world and whether you're willing to sacrifice a little bit in order to help them out. So thanks for that question, Fred. Hope that was helpful. For our final question of the day, we have a video question from Patrick on how to advertise an unknown product category. Hey, 
thanks for all the great episodes. Huge fan. Um, Steve Jobs is famous for saying that, uh, what is it? People don't know what they want until you show it to them. Um, this can be a really good thing because it means you've got kind of a blue ocean new product uh, like the iPhone. Uh, the problem I'm running into is how do you run advertising campaigns for something people don't know exists? My product is in the B2B SaaS space. It's called ThreadLive. It's an email workspace designed for B2B sales and procurement people and project teams that are spending hours every day managing emails. Uh, we've got a Chrome extension that goes right into Gmail so you can quickly mirror uh, emails into our platform and then manage them uh, like you would a file or uh, share them with other people. Um, anyway, our initial focus is uh, single-player mode MVP, and uh, we plan to introduce collaboration features in the future. We've got a freemium model, uh, and then after about two months of heavy use, we'll be charging $20 a month. So clearly, this is a product that needs many users to be successful, so we need a low-touch model. The problem is there just aren't a lot of people searching for something they don't know that they need. So what do you think is the best way to contact and market to these types of users? Thank you. So before I kick it to you, Asia, I want to do my famous startups for the rest of us comments about please don't use Steve Jobs or Basecamp as examples. Because Steve Jobs, when he was 23, guess how much he was worth? A million dollars, which is actually about 4.5, like 5x. So he'd be worth $5 million. When he was 24, he was worth $10 million. When he was 25, he was worth $100 million. You know what I mean? And so if, that, if you're in that case, then use Steve Jobs as an example. If, if you co-invented or, say, co-founded a company with the inventor of a once-in-a-generation device, the Apple computer at the time, then use him as an example. If you bootstrapped to nine figures in ARR and you were one of the first SaaS apps ever and you did a really good job executing but also got a little lucky, as Jason Fried said, on the microcom stage, then use them as an example. Otherwise, you're not in their shoes. You don't have the resources. You, you can't. Basecamp comes and says, you know, we don't do marketing, right? We don't track analytics. We don't track opens. We don't. And so should you? Well, are you Basecamp? Like, keep in mind who you're following. So I just want to say that as anytime I hear the Steve Jobs, the Basecamp, or Henry Ford's often quoted, and I'm like, oh, so you're in their boat then, because no, you're not. Like most of us aren't, right? And we have to grind and we have to do things a little differently. Also, I, and I'm, I want to be honest, like Jason Fried and DHH are tiny seed mentors. They invested in our first fund. So I'm not throwing shade at them, but I'm saying they often give advice that fits them really well and worked for them that I think it won't work for 999 out of the next thousand startups. So anyways, with that, Asia, you want to take a crack at this one? Yeah, I'll I'll throw in timing as well. I, I I think thinking about like timing and curves and all of that and like when certain things, but anyway. Okay. So this question is really all about I'm hearing there's some messaging challenges. I'm uh I'm also hearing a little bit of positioning and and you know, if you follow the April Dunford model, of course, then you know that messaging is derived from your positioning. Uh so it really starts with pretty solid positioning and then of course we get into messaging. The thing about customers not knowing what they want until they have it, the thing about that statement is that customers are never going to be good product managers. Like they're never going to be able to tell you what features to build or like what to do. They can really only tell you what they want and it's our job as product managers and product owners to extract that at scale at a very high level and also like get into the nitty gritty details of like, okay, how does this actually translate into value based off of what the customer is asking for? And how can this be translated more globally across the whole product? But even when we do that, what we find is there is a, there is some narrative or story that we were telling about how this product ultimately contributes value to people. And even if you don't have a software category that this fits into, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have words for like how to describe this to folks. Um, because ultimately customers connect the most with what their pains are, what they're struggling with, and what they're hoping to achieve and to accomplish. Ideally using your product, but if we were to get, you know, break this down into jobs to be done, which is a framework for interviewing customers and really understanding like what progress they're trying to make. What we're going to find is that customers ultimately, once they uh, they have their jobs, they come to you, you, you satisfy the jobs. And then over time, the jobs change and new jobs pop up and hopefully your product, you know, still surfaces or satisfies those needs and otherwise they turn. But all that to say, though, that most customers are not necessarily looking for like, I want the absolute best 
CRM and then they go to the CRM category and then they like troll through. Like usually it's, uh, yeah, sure. I want the CRM, but like there's all these other things that I want about this. And so my question to Patrick would be, it's okay if there's not really a category for this. That actually is the least of my worries. I'm far more concerned with how does your customer describe it? And therefore, how do we now use that to inform our messaging? And that's what we use in our advertising. That's what we use on our website. That's how, that's, that's what we use to really connect with a customer who's trying to buy this. That's where, that's where my, that's where like the first part of the question, that's where I start with. So the second part is really all about, so people aren't searching for this because there's no software category for this, that people are not searching for it. But going back to what I was saying earlier, my thinking around this though is they might not be, there might not be a category for this that they're searching for, but they probably are searching for, I have this problem, I have this pain. And what are y'all using to satisfy this problem or this pain? And again, like this is probably going to be, you know, long tail keyword type work, but that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. I think the second thing that comes to mind is we are making the assumption that search is going to be the, f- the first way that people discover this like, as a product. So I think my, my other question, of course, would be if we were to sell this to folks, what are some other ways that people might discover this product in the context that, of course, they're, they're using it in? So this is a, what was it? It's a, it's a Chrome extension. Yep, for email productivity. Mm-hmm. This automatically makes me think about what about, um, oh gosh, like the Google App Store or like the Chrome like App Store. Like, are, like, is there discovery happening through that? I'm also curious too about what are some of the, are we translating this into other browsers? Like there's many other ways to distribute is what I'm kind of getting at beyond just search. I like those. Yes, anding you because I agree with those and I want to kind of pile a little bit on. You actually mentioned early on about product and how as product owners, we don't build what customers tell us to build. We hear what their problems are and then we have to translate that into a solution, right? So I did a rant on this podcast probably within the last year on a solo episode where I talked about the Henry Ford. If I'd given them what they wanted, they would have given a faster horse. And no, you wouldn't have. Not if you're a good product person because they would have said a faster horse. And I would have thought, hmm, well, I can't make a faster horse, but could I make a train run the same routes as a, you know what I mean? And you eventually get to where it's like, huh, could I make a device that, because they don't want a horse, they just want a faster X. So what is that? Is that a steam powered car? Is that, you know what I mean? Like you get there and if you're a good product person, like again, you, you, you figure it out, right? The second thing I'm thinking about, I guess I want to piggyback on what you said of it doesn't just have to be search. But what you do need is a massive traffic channel, massive to make this work. The only companies that I know who have made this type of low price point freemium model work get hundreds of thousands, if not millions of uniques per month. Whatever that channel is, maybe usually it's search, to be honest. It's usually it's content and search, or they have a media company, and they have an audience. But there's a possibility that the Chrome extension app store has enough traffic to do it. I don't know of a single example. I'm trying to think, I was trying to think as you were talking, a single example of anyone who's bootstrapped a business like this. Because the ones that I know where it truly was freemium and then 20 bucks a month are the Dropboxes. How much did they raise? A kajillion dollars. Mint.com, callback, throwback to 20 minutes ago, a kajillion dollars. Trello, Hootsuite, Spotify, you know what I mean? On and on and on. They're, yeah, they're all freemium. They made it work and they have less than $20 prep. And even like, think of Netflix, right? With a free trial and then they're now 20 bucks and HBO and this and that. I know that's content, not software, but all of them. Just bank accounts, vaults filled with money, with reams of money. So if you're trying to bootstrap a business, unless you have showed amazing traction and growth, Tiny C would not invest in this business because I don't believe that you can bootstrap it. And I won't, I, I say that a little more confident than I am. I don't want to say 100% never going to work, 95% sure this is an inviable business without quite a bit of funding. And it's because you need to last, you need to last for years because Dropbox, remember their early numbers were like 3% of our users use it for free for a year and then convert to paid. And that was a pretty, pretty high number actually. So do the math on that, 3%. So let's say you have, 50,000 free users, which is actually a lot. That's a lot of free users who are to get 50,000 active free users. So after one year, that means you will have 1,500 paying customers. 
And 1,500, doing internet math on live on the internet, times $20 a month is $30,000 of MRR. That is not a viable business because you're never going to get to 50,000 active. Because 50,000 active freemium users, even if you're sticky, what is that? 250,000 total freemium signups? I don't know what, you know, I'm kind of making up numbers here, but it's, you got a big drop off here. So you got to think about this funnel. And other than just having a kajillion search visitors hitting you every month and replenishing that, I don't know how else you do it unless it's to your point, one of these other, you know, one of these other channels that you were kind of talking about. Those channels just have to be really wide. You don't do this with 10,000 uniques a month. You do it with half a million uniques a month. If you do it at all, you do it with half a million or a million. So this is where I struggle. I mean, on this podcast, I kind of have said, I don't answer questions about two-sided marketplaces, about bootstrapping them, unless you already have one side of them. Because everybody seems to want to do it, and it's just like, it doesn't work. Like, stop, please. The other thing is B2C. And I know this is not B2C. You know, it's B2B because it's email productivity. But it's the funnel is like a B2C product. And unless you've made this work, or unless you know what you're doing, you know, meaning you are Ruben Gomez or Heaton Shaw or Brian Balfour, or you're getting mentorship from someone like that, and you're really trying all the things, just setting up the funnel in the way that Dropbox, Mint, Trello, Hootsuite did, just setting up that funnel doesn't, doesn't make it work because all it's cargo culting, right? It's picking one thing and being like, oh, this works because of that. And it's like, no, it works because all of it was there. And if any one of those pieces hadn't worked, the business was completely inviable. And that's the thing we don't see. Is we do, it's a survivor bias a bit, right? It's like, what about the nine? You know, I, again, I mentioned Dropbox, Mint, Trello, Hootsuite, Spotify. What about the ninety-nine others or the ten thousand others that just didn't make it because they tried this model and later they pivot? So I don't want to be the I don't want to be the naysayer. I'm like positive Asia. I want to build people up, but I this is a business. From what I'm hearing, I'm just skeptical it's going to work. And but I'm not saying it's not going to work in any form. It's like, what would it look like to not do freemium, or what would it look like to charge? $200 a month or $250 a month and only sell to enterprise. You know, like what else can we tweak to make this a much more viable business? That's probably where I would start if we were to say, do a strategy session on, on this. This actually does make me think though of businesses that have, that have a, they're like in the process of monetizing their, their Google Chrome extensions. Um, so Adblock Plus, I don't know if anyone is using Adblock Plus, uh, but they have, within the last, I would say, six months or a year, have like aggressively moved to, hey, please pay us. And it is shocking, uh, but also not, because obviously like I'm, I'm in the SaaS world, so I'm, I'm using software all the time, all day, every day. But it is, it is shocking how much I like don't want to pay for it because I'm so used to having it for free. And I'm just like, ugh, like I don't want to have to pay like another thing, you know? So starting, but I, I almost guarantee if this had been more, if I had had the free trial and then that expired and I saw how amazing it was. And then like, if I, if I had been trained in that way, I probably would be more like, oh yeah, like I'll, I'll pay for this. Usually freemium, it's, it's crazy in the numbers game, but you're, you're exactly right. In order for that to be viable, it's gotta be a two to 3% conversion rate into paid. And there are businesses who, of course, achieve this and actually beyond. I've seen it. But I, I would say most most folks are are much below that. <laughs> most are, yeah. Most are below 1% yeah. that I see. I see quite a few freemium. There's a lot of tiny, uh, there, is a, there is a significant enough number of tiny C companies or companies that I've advised that have freemium plans or have had freemium plans. And I see the numbers on them to know that, yeah, 3%, usually you would celebrate that. One other thought. I wanted to bring up the five stages of awareness. And I did a microconf talk in Europe about this a couple of months ago. I think that talk will be available for sale here soon. But if you have never seen this diagram, you can type in five stages of awareness, Eugene Schwartz. And really, Patrick's question was not about his business model and asking me to tell him he shouldn't do it. His question was like, if no one's searching for it, which you addressed, maybe people are, maybe in different ways. But if no one's searching for it, how do you get awareness? And realistically, you have to do what you said, which is go after the problem. Because they're not searching for a solution, but they probably do have this problem, right? And, and five stages of awareness are unaware, problem aware, solution aware, product aware, and most aware. In a perfect world, you cater to the last two of those or maybe the last three, right? That they are looking for a solution, look, they know the name of your product, and they really know the space well. As you go further up that chain, so unaware and problem aware, becomes way more expensive, way more time intensive to capture them. And that's what I was saying with this is based on your, on your freemium model and your price points, you need a huge funnel, very wide. And usually that search, it can be other things, of course. 
if you're truly just trying to advertise, then you you go on Instagram. I mean, how much how much stuff have I bought where I barely had a problem, or I or I really was unaware that I had a problem, like the Amazon flash sale. Oh, I didn't realize that I needed another pair of slippers, but they totally advertised to me on Instagram. Or I didn't realize I bought this thing called a Flexi Cam which I didn't even realize, I kind of realized I had a problem, but I didn't realize there was a solution. And it's, it kind of fakes, it's a see-through thing where you hang your webcam down in your screen. So you can like hang it over a Google Doc. PlexiCam, I believe it's called. I just saw an ad on Instagram. I was like, oh, yeah, I do have that problem. I had no idea there was a solution. And so they ran an ad. Here's the thing. Ads are expensive. And that's why I said, if you're going to try to do this with ads or whatever, you don't bootstrap this business. That's my sentiment is you do have to raise buckets of funding to be able to optimize that ad funnel. And then why does PlexiCam and Amazon, why do they work? Why can they run those ads? Well, it's because they sell a product with a decent chunk, you know, that PlexiCam is $50, $70, whatever it is. So they paid off that ad spend real quick. Patrick's in this case of, well, they're freemium for two months, only if they're a heavy user, then they convert to 20 bucks. You know, we're talking, what are we talking, six months out before we get payback? That starts to be challenging. Six months out at bed, and it's going to be further than six months because you're going to u- lose a bunch. So you're talking a 12-month payback, a nine-month payback, and you just don't, as a bootstrapper, you don't have the money to keep doing that. So, I think, too, um, it seems like there's an assumption that that people don't actually know a, like about email collaboration tools, but there are absolutely shared inboxes. Like Front is, is a huge one. There are shared inboxes that are geared to specific audiences, like support, for example. But email collaboration and shared inboxes are not—they're not a totally new concept. It just might be new for maybe the people that he's targeting. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people are not solution aware. They're, they're, his, his audience probably—they are probably solution aware. They just don't know that his product is in existence, and that's a very different scenario. That's actually a much more favorable ecosystem to be in because what you don't want is people who are truly unaware like they don't even know that they have a problem that this is painful for them and that those are people you don't want to waste your time on but it's very possible that they actually are problem aware they just don't know that thread live actually exists and that's the difference between like solution aware versus maybe product aware that's the difference but i i would i would argue that they probably are aware of other solutions they're just maybe and like they don't actually solve the problem so they don't they don't buy them they don't do them but this this warrants much more discussion. I think I, I don't I don't think we can assume that they are truly unaware of solutions like this. It's just it's just much more likely that they're un, they're unaware of ThreadLive specifically. I like that. Yeah, I like that clarification. So thanks for that question, Patrick. I hope it was helpful. Asia Rangio, thanks for another banger episode. <laughs> Did we do it? <laughs> we made it through. For folks uh, who don't know, you are the founder of Demand Maven at demandmaven.io. And of course, you are Asia Aragio on the Twitters. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Asia for coming back on Startups for the Rest of Us. I hope your new year is going well. I hope it's off to a great start. I'll be talking back at you again next Tuesday. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 695.